Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast, where we look at the big picture and break down the macro so that it can be more actionable for you. Today, we're going to talk about China and the UK. But before we get started, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Hey, everyone. It's good to be back. Uh, So interesting topics, lots going on around the world. Let's kick it off with uh, China. So what's going on there? You know, first, I just want to talk a little bit about their markets because they're not doing so well. There was this great hope of the Chinese reopening. And we saw a lot of optimism priced into shares and commodities. And it's not panning out. We'll talk a little bit more about why. But it was really kind of cool to see that one of our calls at Macrovisor was fade the China equity rally. We didn't think it was sustainable. And you got called on to Bloomberg and you actually said, you know, we feel, just reiterating that call, that shorting China is the right thing. And the host sort of said, yeah, you know, this whole thing has been talked about so much. Nothing really came of it. Well, just last week, Chinese equities measured by the Shanghai index crossed below their 200-day moving average. So now momentum really favors the sellers there. The, the picture that we've talked about, the Chinese reopening that wasn't, it's playing out. Yes, unfortunately, that seems to be the situation. And as I said on the show as well, I mean, I was pretty bullish about it as well. If you remember, we were discussing about you know how the Chinese reopening would affect Uh, the consumer and pent-up demand. And obviously, one of the biggest things that we wanted to see in that area was industrial production and manufacturing coming back. Um, So we saw a bit of the consumption coming back. There was obviously uh, travel and leisure spending, but not so much in terms of uh, industrial production and manufacturing. So what do you make of that? I think it's disappointing. I believe that the numbers that we're seeing from China with regards to their industrial production and exports are a lot lower than what we were looking for to qualify this as really a new credit cycle, a reinvigoration of not just the Chinese economy, but a lot of the sort of interwoven emerging markets that have very close economic relationships. And so I think it speaks to a bigger picture in China. I think it speaks to one where, yes, they've reopened, but after three years of such intense COVID policy, you might even call it oppression, people aren't ready to get back to normal. And even if they are, there's a lot of headwinds in this economy. Absolutely. And Speaking of which, it doesn't seem like all that pent up savings or excess savings that everyone was talking about, doesn't seem like a lot of that is being deployed into the economy as well. I mean, you were discussing something about retail sales. Uh, How's that looking now? You know, that's a really interesting question. I just stumbled upon a great set of data over at Macrobond, and they always have some really interesting tidbits. And one of the sets of data they had, was satellite data looking at where cars were parked in proximity of high-intensity shopping areas. And they showed this on a chart going back, I want to say a couple of years, and how there's a pretty darn strong positive correlation between their retail sales numbers and the satellite traffic. And the satellite traffic is now leading us down to a flat line, essentially suggesting that retail sales are going to get to a point where they're not growing at all year over year. And that's disconcerting given that going back a year, China was closed. 
So if retail sales are not picking up and industrial production is not picking up, or rather, let's say retail sales are now declining. Um, what about the rest of the country? So what does the real estate sector look like? I mean, we know that they had been in trouble for a while. Last year, we had all these stories about Evergrande, and that was like the big name dominating the headlines. Um, but I believe that has not been resolved as yet, have, has it? No, unfortunately, it has not. There are still a lot of signs of problems in their real estate and the can very much connected construction uh, sector in their economy. And so with real estate, new housing starts are down over 25% year over year. So again, we're looking at a time when comps were during a closed economy and they're still falling. So that's a huge area of concern. And then when we look at home sales by floor area, they're shrinking. So consumers, even though we're coming out of this, they're actually buying less house when they are buying. Right. So that's another bit of a concern. The idea that there was going to be these wealth effects from stimulus, from all this pent up savings. We're not really seeing it. And another thing is, and this is expressed in multiple areas, we're not seeing a real credit impulse. The Chinese credit impulse is turning lower and loan issuance to consumers is practically on a non-existent growth trajectory. So people aren't spending their savings, they aren't borrowing against their savings, they aren't buying much house, and developers are pulling back meaningfully. So I'd say, given where we are, there's a lot less demand for housing from folks that might have the capital. And then the next generation, and this is a theme we see across varying geographies with, with different impacts, but the youth unemployment rate in China is historically high. Now, they only started keeping these records maybe about 10 years ago as to what they were in previous times. But by that set of records, it's near an all-time high. And so we have a whole generation that is being left behind that would otherwise be part of this consumer-driven economy, potentially, but they can't find work. And so that brings us to a vicious cycle, right? So if you have higher unemployment, you have lower consumption, which drives higher unemployment and lower consumption. So on and on and on. But just to take a step back, something interesting that you mentioned about the real estate developers and credit, in fact. So one piece of news that came out, I think, last month was that China's real estate developers have debt worth almost 12% of the country's GDP. And about 48% of that borrowing that's held by 186 of their listed developers are on the brink of default. So either they've already defaulted or they're on the brink of default. And 12% of the country's GDP, that's actually pretty substantial. And we're seeing some of these bonds even get um, restructured, refinanced, particularly the dollar bonds, the offshore dollar bonds. So I think that as well bodes, you know, doesn't bode well rather for uh, the developers and for the real estate sector um, where further activity is concerned. So with all of this pressure already on the sector, I would think that the developers are not thinking about any new kind of uh, construction activity. And that's a problem for a country where the majority of their GDP contribution for some time was from construction and real estate activity. And so we're seeing these two pillars of what was the once great engine of economic growth for this country falling to the wayside. And there were signs along the way. 
and this is something we've talked about before, where the Chinese government used to basically fund building empty cities because it would help to stimulate the economy. This was very popular from 2006 all the way through 2011. And then it started to fade out quite a bit. And at the same time, a lot of that so-called new commodity super cycle that was driven by that commodities uh, demand for construction began to fade out as well. But this time, we're also seeing stress in these funding vehicles. And you're alluding to this as well with what you're saying, these uh, local government financing vehicles. And it's interesting because these local government financing vehicle bonds actually constitute 39% of total outstanding corporate bonds in China. So it's a pretty significant amount of debt. And a lot of this is also increasingly in trouble because these bonds were taken out to fund infrastructure and real estate projects in areas, some of which are starting to struggle quite a bit. That that is a substantial number. I didn't realize it was that high. Um, so this then brings us to like a bigger problem. I think a lot of people are, you know, technically bullish still on the Chinese market, and part of the reason is because um, they believe that China will be pumping money or stimulus, uh, or the government rather would be pumping money into the economy, and that would probably give stocks a little bit of a lift. But from everything you're saying, it doesn't seem like the stimulus will sort of be going towards the stock market because there seems to be more pressing areas of concern where this stimulus will probably head. Yeah, and it's interesting that you touch on that because this goes back to something that we had discussed several months ago on one of our videos when we were talking about the sort of state of the bear market rally we were in. And we went back and forth that, you know, maybe some of this initial stimulus could juice the markets a bit, and it did, but that as we went out through time, it could become more like a liquidity sponge. Because the real estate sector is so troubled, it needs so much capital just to avoid these defaults that could become a rolling problem you know, becoming a larger systemic risk. And there's one thing we know. The Chinese government is okay with defaults. They're okay with state-backed entities and large companies failing, provided that it isn't a systemic risk. Now, how they make that judgment is, is something that is happening behind closed doors. But we know that they're allowing some of these things to fail because maybe in essence, you know, they're starting to see that not everything necessarily needs to be 100% backed by the government and, and just functioning no matter what. You know, there are some elements of free markets in China, just not 100%. So we're seeing some of that, which suggests going back to these local government financing vehicles, that many of them may be allowed to default simply because the alternative becomes untenable. To try to save all of this stuff could be extremely expensive and a very poor use of money indeed. So there was a piece of news um, a couple of weeks ago that Goldman Sachs has now um, sort of brought down their GDP forecast. I think um, they, they were looking at something like maybe six, six and a half percent, and now they are sort of revising that down. Um, where do you think this goes? I think it's a great question. I, I just... Look, I have personally, and I know we've talked about this as well, I think we're very much on the same page about this. I, I have a lot of reservations about the idea of decoupling here between China and the West. I don't think that China can have its own isolated credit cycle that runs contrary to what we have in the West for anything more than uh, several quarters. I think over time, because China is so reliant 
on demand for its exports from the US, from Europe, from the UK, that there's not a mechanism for them to sever that reliance without their consumer class emerging and becoming much more robust in their demand. And that's exactly what we're not seeing. So my outlook is that China's credit cycle is going to have to catch down to the rest of the world where there's this sort of process of recalibration, of deleveraging, and of acquiescing to the reality that there's going to be a lot of credit problems over the next year or two. And China's no exception to that. Europe, UK, the US, there's no exceptions here. There's a lot of credit problems that are on the horizon. And quite frankly, we need this rinse out. We've had 14 years of of near constant monetary and in some cases fiscal stimulus, emergency level support for the economy, for various global economies. And now we're on the other side of that. We're on the other side of over a decade of bad risk management, of a lack of appreciation for what things could look like on the other side of this policy cycle. And so we have a lot of overhang to reconcile. I think Chinese economy or China's economy has to catch down with the rest of the world. So I think, you know, even a 5% GDP is wildly optimistic. I unfortunately think that we're going to see China return to the twos and threes. And then unfortunately, it's likely that they follow the West into a recessionary period, probably late this year, or early next, simply because everything is so tied together. It's so inextricably bound together that the fates of a lot of these economies are, are sort of inseparable. That makes sense. And therefore, I think you're absolutely right. China has a tough time ahead of them, at least for the next six months, if not longer. I agree. And it's interesting because it gives us a great opportunity to look at the UK, because this is sort of the other side of the coin, right? If we look at where are some of the problems for China starting, it's because of a lack of demand for their exports. And we see that from the US, we see it from the European Union, and we see it from the UK. And they're struggling with their own economic problems, aren't they? Absolutely, they are. Um, so one of the biggest surprises we got last week was the Bank of England hiking rates by 50 basis points. And obviously, that wasn't in the cards. So they had paused for a while. And I think everybody thought that when they do resume, it will probably be a gradual resumption at 25 basis points or 0.25%. Um, but unfortunately, they did surprise us with a very hawkish um, rise of 0.50%. Now, what did you make of that? Because it, it did come as a surprise to many observers. And yet at the same time, we saw the pound sterling actually weaken against a number of other pairs. It was almost like the market was kind of saying, ah, we're not so sure about your resolve. What did you make of that? So I think, you know, there's been fits and starts to their story. So, um, but the biggest problem right now there is still inflation, right? So headline inflation has sort of come down slightly Headline inflation in the UK is still at 8.7% year on year, which is wow. re remarkably higher than most of the other developed countries. So we've seen inflation abate quite a bit in uh, the Eurozone and as well as the US. So the US has done well on headline inflation. Um, core inflation, of course, remains sticky everywhere. But even when you look at core inflation, the UK came in at 7.1%, which was higher 
than the previous month, which was at 6.8%. So when you when you look at all these numbers, they're actually scary. And they're scary because it's not like we're at the beginning of the hiking cycle, right? We're quite far into the hiking cycle. And right now we have rates of about what now, you know, the bank rate is 5%. A 5% bank rate in the UK is something they haven't seen in years. So it's basically creating a lot of trouble in the economy. What do you make of that divergence that you spoke to? Because this is something that's interested me a lot as well, observing this from afar. The UK economy seems to have its own unique set of structural challenges that have created a higher inflationary backdrop than we're seeing in other comparable regions. What's going on? So one of the issues is obviously unemployment. So just like the U.S., their unemployment numbers remain very, very low. Um, And I think it's about 3.8%, if I'm not mistaken. And with that low level of unemployment, there is also this wage growth that's happening, right? So all in all, that's causing some of the core CPI components to remain sticky. Um, I wouldn't even say sticky, I would actually say to accelerate, right? So we're seeing a month-on-month acceleration in the yearly figure. So all this keeps the market very tight, particularly the wage and um, the unemployment, like the labor market being so tight, it's sort of driving up the inflation. And it's not very dissimilar to what you're seeing in the US. It's quite comparable, let's say. Um, But I think because the UK is a smaller economy, it's being transmitted much faster. Yeah, that's that's interesting and unfortunately quite disconcerting for our friends over there across the pond, at least from where I'm sitting here. I hope that they're able to get that situation under better control. But it sounds like inflation really isn't the only problem that they're facing, that this is an economy that is kind of central banks are walking tightropes in a lot of countries, UK being no exception, where on the one hand, they don't tighten enough and inflation is, is this rip roaring you know, a a phenomenon that is sort of tearing apart consumers and businesses underneath the surface. But on the other hand, if they go too heavy, it sounds like the UK is is very close to going into a recession. Absolutely so. So unfortunately, at the consumer level right now, what's happening is there's a big problem with uh, mortgages and with the housing market, right? So housing prices... have come down quite a bit. And part of that was because uh, the mortgage rate sort of came down in the last few months because, you know, the two-year rate and the five-year rate remained more or less stable. But with this latest hike and the bank rate going to 5%, what we're seeing now is everybody complaining about the mortgage rate because, for example, the two-year mortgage rate is currently at six and a quarter percent which is pretty high um, for the UK. And that's a two-year rate. You think about the 10-year, 30-year mortgage rate in the US, which is at 7%. So a two-year rate versus a 10-year rate, it's a big difference, right? So comparatively, this rate is much higher and is putting a lot of pressure on the housing market in the UK. 
Um, the other issue is obviously retail sales. And we're seeing the retail sales number sort of drop on a month-on-month basis and on a year-on-year basis. So we are seeing consumption come down. And this is one of the only ways, in fact, for them to break inflation, so to speak. So one would be to see a higher level of unemployment and the other one would be to see a lower level of consumption. Now, when you put these two things together, unfortunately, you are going to be faced with a situation where the country may go into a recession. Now, I I believe, uh, so they've already seen a monthly negative GDP growth, a very small one, point. 3%, 3% minus monthly, 0.3%. Quarterly? Monthly. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, monthly. That's a lot. Uh, yeah. M- minus 0.3%. Um, so the quarterly numbers are still holding positive, but below 0.5%. So it's about 0.2 and then 0.1 before that. So it's very, still very, very low. So the GDP growth is very low. So it's not going to take too much to push the economy into a recession unfortunately at this stage it doesn't seem like it at three at point three percent per month if you analyze that that's negative three point six percent year over year if that ends up being a trend that's a pretty nasty recession not even a garden variety type of recession and looking at the composition of these uk mortgages i just want to touch on that for a second forty percent of mortgages in this country over the last year have reset to these substantially higher rates. That's a huge impact. Yes. So that that's again another issue with the country that, that there's a lot of there are a lot of mortgages um, that have interest only components, right? So for the first two years you're only paying interest. For the first five years you're only paying interest. But thereafter um, they become you know floating rate mortgages, which is you know a big problem, right? So Basically, you start to pay your principal after this two-year moratorium on the principal, um, and then you're paying, you know, at much higher rates. So it's it's not the it's not the same fixed rate situation that the U.S. has, which is actually boding well for the banks in a way. So the UK banks are actually doing much better than the U.S. regional banks because they are able to sort of adjust to this higher rate. But on the other hand, consumers are the ones who are suffering. Yeah, and if consumers are suffering, then it begs the question, how long are banks set to benefit before we start to see higher delinquency and default rates on these mortgages? I mean, seeing that amount of a rate adjustment where your monthly payment may have doubled over the course of the year and such a large swath of those mortgages at 40%, that adds, you know, insult to injury because households are already dealing with these staggeringly high inflation levels compared to any of these other developed markets and even some of the developing economies around the world. The UK is really starting to look quite bad in comparison. And then you add to it this rising cost of capital for housing. That's a toxic double whammy. And it does beg the question, if we do see a recession there, I'm going to imagine that a lot of those mortgages are going to go into default and there's going to be a lot of pain for banks over there as well. So, in fact, this is something that they are taking up with the government as well, okay, Um, because this has to be dealt with at that level, right? Because the government has to tighten. They have no other way. The Bank of England needs to tighten 
do bring down inflation, but at the same time, they need to do something to sort of alleviate the concerns um, in the housing market. So one of the things that they are doing is sort of putting a longer moratorium on defaults, right? So, you know, you're not going to immediately call a default and repossess the home. Um, so this is something, this is a negotiation that is still going on because this started off, let's say, uh, with more fervor after this last rate hike, right? So once, you know, the bank rate reached 5%, uh, people just started making a lot of noise and they said, you know, we need to address this at a higher level. We need to address this with our banks. And it just all sort of, it's still very fluid. The situation is still very fluid. But from what I'm reading is that the banks are thinking about giving a little bit more leeway um, in this. And they would be right to because at this moment, so about a month ago, the terminal rate for the UK was meant to be 5%. We've reached the terminal rate. But does that mean that they won't hike anymore? Not really. So what's happening now is the terminal rate has moved up substantially. Most analysts and banks are now pricing in a six and a quarter percent terminal rate for the UK. And if the rate reaches six and a quarter percent, that means the mortgage rate, the two-year mortgage rate is likely to re, you know, cross 7%, which is going to be a disaster for their housing market. So the banks do have to do something about the situation here. But the other side to it is obviously this is going to push push the economy into a recession. So again, a month ago before this rate hike, before the surprise rate hike, we had JP Morgan, we had Morgan Stanley, both pricing in the GDP growth at 0.3%. But as of today, um, they haven't come out with new estimates yet. But as of today, there is news trickling in that the UK might go into a recession because of this aggressive hiking cycle. So I guess the, the question for everyone out there probably listening is, why does it seem sometimes like there's this sort of reluctant optimism about where the terminal rate's going to be versus where data suggests it should go? UK inflation is is arguably the highest in the developed world, if not the second. It's It probably is number one. And if that's the case, then it's hard to say the Bank of England is just going to get to five and stand pat and say, mission accomplished, right, with a big banner behind them and, and inflation continuing to rocket higher. So why was this a surprise given the data for these banks? So I think... This is an interesting, it's a great point that you bring up. And it's something that I think you and I have been discussing for a while now. The situation that we are seeing today in the developed world, this level of inflation, it hasn't been experienced in the last 30, 40 years, right? So this core inflation is a 31-year high. That is the age of the an average analyst out there in the market, right? So the analysts are 35, 45 years old, right? So when you look at the people who are actually crunching the numbers and who are actually putting out the data, they've never really experienced this in their lifetime. And even if you think about the people who have out there, like the senior people, 
okay, the MDs and all of those, they're what, 50, 55? So it's like they were 20, 25 when inflation was this high, right? So all we know about this whole situation is whatever we've read, you and me, whatever we've studied and read. And it's the same with them as well. So sort of wrapping your head around this level of inflation, everything that's driving it, and then forecasting those numbers to a high degree of accuracy is a big challenge. Even though we have far more data today than we do, you know, or we did back then, experience counts for a lot. So, and there are too many moving parts and there's so much that has happened in the last three years. Um, I think all of this is driving inflation in various ways. So it's almost like um, a whack-a-mole, right? So you contain one spot and another one pops up, right? So they're just putting out fires as they can. And so this whole situation that, okay, we'll be hiking to 5% and then we'll be done was probably the right plan at some point. Um, but then they saw this resurgence of inflation again, right? And they're desperate not to break the economy, which is everybody's concern, obviously. Part of that is also fiscal policy, which is coming in to counteract the effects of the monetary policy. So everything com combined, I think the problem is, it's very hard for people to sort of uh, gauge where these rates will go. I agree. And and you mentioned monetary policy, and I think this is a great uh, last area of discussion uh, as we as we begin to wrap up here. But we've seen something from the Bank of England that I felt was kind of interesting, at least noteworthy. And that's that unlike the Fed, where most of the maturities that they own are going to expire really this year, about $5 trillion worth. It's a pretty staggering figure. Their maturities are actually, when they are rolling off their balance sheet, it's, it's much more distributed across a wide variety of years. And so we're seeing the Bank of England actually selling gilts, which is so much different than what we see here in the U.S. What do you make of that as a component of their policy, particularly given that not long ago there was that pension issue? So what happened during the pension issue was, yeah, the Bank of England had to come out and sort of buy another, I think, 18, 19 billion worth of gilts. And that was right in October, uh, just before they started to go on their program for um, QT, let's say. Now, uh, since November, they have started their QT program. They've started selling uh, 750 million pounds worth of gilts. So the issue with the Bank of England is what they what they discussed was they're going to be running off 80 to 90 billion pounds worth of gilts uh, between November and 2023. So starting in November and the entire 2023, of which 40 billion pounds worth of gilts are going to be sold outright, right? And the reason for this is because they don't have enough gilts to cover. So what you talked about, you know, the maturity, so like the Fred has 5 trillion, so they have plenty of bonds maturing this year for them to just let it mature 
and run off the balance sheet. Unfortunately, the Bank of England doesn't have that luxury. So what they've said is they have about 40. So they do have about 69, which is maturing in 2023. But they are going to do outright sales of 40 billion. Um, and these gilts will be anywhere between three years, so maturing in three years to seven years. So three years, seven year maturity, those gilts. Um, they're not going very much further down the curve just yet. Until now, they haven't discussed going further than seven years. So these bonds, these gilts, were presumably bought during a much different environment a time when rates were lower, where liquidity was more ample. They're taking losses on these sales, aren't they? They are, yes. So they are, with the outright sales, they are crystallizing the loss for the balance sheet. But nevertheless, they still have to bring the balance sheet down, right? So they have no other choice. But what what does that mean for them as a central bank? They're sort of hybrid with the government. Does that mean the government's taking a loss on their budget? Does that impair them in any way? How does that kind of affect things? So it does. It does, obviously, um, because it does hit the Treasury, right? Um, but at the same time, as I said, they don't have a choice. Um, right. They have to run down the balance sheet. And since they don't have enough maturities, this is their only way of running down the balance sheet. So if the government is crystallizing these losses through the Treasury, is that going to impact their ability to do fiscal stimulus in a recessionary environment? Or are they going to be somewhat constrained because of these losses? Or is it not so, big enough to matter? No, it's it's not as big as we think it is. Um, so the uh, this is another reason why they are selling the gilts between three and seven years. So they're not going further down the curve because then they would have to take higher losses, right? So they're they're keeping them they're they're keeping their sales to shorter maturities as short as possible. Let's put it that way. Um, in terms of the fiscal stimulus, I think most analysts still expect a fiscal stimulus next year for fifteen billion pounds. And this, again, is another issue um, which will sort of counteract their monetary policy. And um, But by then, most like everybody sort of has this idea that by 2024, most of the central banks will stop hiking. And quite possibly by Q3, Q4 of 2024, they'll start cutting rates. Uh, regardless of whether they stop hiking or they start cutting rates, um, everybody does foresee that QT will continue into the end of next year. And it has to, because if you've look at, looked at any of the balance sheet charts, and I'm sure you have, um, the growth has been massive. And so I don't think QT can even stop in 2024. I think that, you know, all these developed countries will need to run down their balance sheet for at least the next three years if they want to bring it back into the same kind of manageable position. And because the rundown that they're doing is at very low levels, right? Because they don't want to disrupt the economy as such. So the pace at which they're running down the balance sheet is so very um, moderate, let's say, that they're probably going to have to do this for the next three years if they want to bring it down to a palatable level. 
Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, we have swung well into the areas of monetary and fiscal excess where one was feeding the other as well. And now we have to work off that hangover after so many years, after over a decade. So this has been a great conversation. It actually leads us into some future potential conversations about central banking that could be fun to explore. But we'll cap it here. This has been an excellent episode of the Macrovisor podcast covering UK and China, really trying to talk about what's going on in the broader global picture, because we spend a lot of time talking about the United States and there's, I mean, everyone's focused on it, but let's face it, there's a whole world out there and we intend to talk about various other geographies and economies as well. If you enjoyed this episode of the Macrovisor podcast, consider subscribing to it on your favorite service. You can check it out on Amazon, Apple, Google, or Spotify. And if you like it, give us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. And if you haven't checked out our website, check us out at macrovisor.com. We put out plenty of free and paid content. So no matter what subscription you choose, you will get some value. And before we close out, Aisha, do you have any final thoughts for our audience here? I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. We will catch you next time.